We are encountering silence. Encountering silence is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Please visit patreon.com slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be a part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. Here on Encountering Silence, our focus has always been on the need to take silence seriously. It is very easy to focus on the content of communication. Sound, image, idea, all blend seamlessly in our contemporary world. We often forget the silence that is necessary for thinking, creating, and communicating. Silence is good for us, and necessary. Yet, that isn't the complete story. We have also talked about how silence can be used in negative ways, to punish, to erase, to kill, literally and figuratively. One way to frame both of these issues is to think of silence in terms of discipline. On the one hand, silence is a discipline, a practice that requires effort, guidelines, and attention to allow for its necessary place in our lives. On the other hand, If silence is used as discipline, we see how harmful that can be. Today's guest explores the ambiguity of the discipline of silence. Today, we welcome the award-winning author Jane Broggs. Her most recent book was just recently published this January, and it's called Silence, a Social History of One of the Least Understood Elements of Our Lives. She's the author of Brilliant, The Evolution of Artificial Light, which was named one of the top 10 nonfiction books of 2010 by Time Magazine. She is also the author of Clearing Land, Legacies of the American Farm, 5,000 Days Like This One, which was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award in nonfiction, and Here and Nowhere Else, which won the L.L. Winship Penn New England Award. She has received the New England Book Award for Nonfiction, and her essays have appeared in many anthologies, including Best American Essays, the Norton Book of Nature Writing, and the Pushcart Prize Anthology. She has been awarded grants from the John Simon Guggenheim Foundation, the National Endowment for the Arts, the Massachusetts Cultural Council, and the Maine Arts Commission. She has taught at Harvard University and Bowdoin College, and is currently on the faculty of Leslie University's Low Residency MFA program. She currently lives in Brunswick, Maine. Jane Brocks, welcome to Encountering Silence. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Oftentimes, since we focus so much on silence, we'd like to ask out of the gate, usually the first question, what is your relationship with silence? Do you have a particular silence practice? Do you find that silence is a necessary component of your life? Uh, and if you do you have a, re- a recollection of maybe some powerful moment of silence in your life, maybe as a kid or an adult? Well, it's interesting. I don't have a formal practice today, and I never have really. But I think silence has always been important to my life, um, partly because I'm a writer and to me, there's never enough silence when I'm working, and not only when I'm working at the page, but before and afterwards, just to 
that's the that's the place in which the work grows. So it's essential to me. I'm you know I I've been trying to figure out where this fascination with silence or the need to articulate something about it began. It may have been, you know, I grew up on a farm. I spent a lot of time by myself in the woods. That might have been part of it. But I know one of the sort of one big moment for me was I was living on Nantucket Island in my 20s and kind of lost. And I spent a a winter way out, house-sitting way out on the edge of an island and uh, edge of the island. And I encountered a silence that was so huge um, it scared me and I had to contend with it every night (laughs) and it was Mm -hmm. sometimes full of wind and I think that that really um, sort of set this idea of silence and 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 started this interest in it that um, only 40 years later has sort of made itself into a book so yeah wow I love I love what you just said about how Silence, um, it's the place in which the work grows. I think that's what you said. Is that right? Um, yeah. <laughs> I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about um, silence's role in your process or maybe the role silence plays in your creativity and your your experience with the relationship between silence and writing. Well, it, you know, it's it's largely a mystery, but I know... It begins in silence, and I think maybe the first time I understood that fully was I was in my early 30s, and I was lucky enough to get a fellowship to the McDowell Colony. You know, I had had five poems to my name. I was bewildered about where my life was going, and all of a sudden, I was granted this cabin in the woods with nothing but silence and time. Mm sort of a dare. It's like, okay, you've been given what you've wanted. (laughs) (laughs) And it was, and and I had one of my best friends I I, I met at McDowell and she says the same thing. She's a composer. It was that time in silence that made me understand just what could be accomplished and just how much that silence is necessary to, to, to any deep thinking. And you know, I realized that, you know, I can, I can work, I can get along in fragments for a while, but I need an extended period of time in silence in order for any comprehensive writing to go forward. I love the way you describe that, too, because uh, I guess it's because you're a writer. What I'm hearing is your life and your writing mixing, and I love how you just described you you went seamlessly from my writing and then you you said i can live in fragments and then and then i need to so you were is it you or is it your work it's in fragments and i think you're saying both i, I it's a beautiful kind of metaphor here mm. I, I have to say i don't know if there's much difference anymore yeah. you know? <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I mean i think that to me the great gift of writing has been this attunement to the world that it's is a real privilege. I know that everybody doesn't have the opportunity to have that, but I, I mean, I think that in a way I'm always looking, even, you know, I've, I've just finished the book. I have no concrete, concrete plans for the next one, but there's something in me that's always circling around and trying to find the next thing or trying to figure out how to articulate 
something about this big world of ours, mm -hmm. you know, and mysteries in it. So I think that, you know, that there is maybe that wasn't such a slip after all, <laughs> that there really is not much difference between the two. Right. So. Jane, we're all Thomas Merton nerds on uh -huh. this uh, podcast. Uh, and Merton figures quite prominently in your wonderful new book. Could you tell us a little bit about how you and, and Merton discovered one another or how you discovered Merton at any rate? Well, I remember reading him back in the 70s, you know, when I was in college, I reading Seven Story Mountain and The Sign of Jonas. And those books were a companion to me, I have been a companion to me, I think, for most of my life. And I hadn't when I began the book, I hadn't thought of him as a central figure, but then I started rereading him and reading more deeply into some of his other works, his diaries and uh, letters and things like that. And I realized that he articulated so much so well that I wanted to bring him along. And I also wanted sort of a human companion through both silences. And I had Charles Williams, the first prisoner at Eastern State for the penitentiary part. And Thomas Merton seemed the perfect companion to the um, monastery segment. I was a little concerned because Thomas Merton is oft written about, but then I figured he can always be written about. <laughs> <laughs> it's like writing about Shakespeare. Yeah. 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 And the challenge with Charles Williams, the prisoner, was there. he left no written documentation of his life, no right. testimony. And Merton left so much. Right. <laughs> it was a challenge just to narrow it down and shape it. Yeah, there's a real silence around Charles Williams. Mm-hmm. Just, uh, you know, and, and how we can encounter him today. Uh, for anyone listening to this podcast who hasn't read your book yet, tell, tell us a little bit about who Charles Williams was. Charles Williams was the first prisoner uh, at Eastern State Penitentiary outside of Philadelphia. He entered the prison in 1829. Eastern State Penitentiary was, a, um, was the first use of comprehensive use of silent and solitary incarceration. And it was an experiment fostered by Benjamin Rush, one of our founding fathers, who was looking for a way to create a new system of justice, one that would be actually more humane than the blood punishments of hanging and branding. And he, and he looked to the monastic cell as a means of a penitential punishment that would bring the offender to a realization of his crimes and welcome him back into society. Of course, it went um, awry. But Charles Williams, uh, there is testimony. There are there are visitors to the penitentiary who leave records of encountering him, and there are the the formal records of the penitentiary that log his time there. But that's all the information we have of this eighteen-year-old farmer. And how long did he stay there? He was there for two years to the day. He was, <laughs> and um, most of the most of the early sentences were anywhere from a year to 12 years, I would say. I found, what I found so interesting, like you said, it was a smart move for me as a reader to have two companions to walk in these two areas and to have Charles Williams walking and to hear 
his story, as hard as it is to hear it, and then Thomas Merton, and to hear his story, which is also, I think, hard to hear on some level. I found that very fruitful for me. And I think the third character is silence. Hmm. And the relationship between those three. What would you say, (laughs) after having written this book, that relationship is? How is silence, when is it good and when is it bad? I think one of the most interesting things about having written the book is how complex silence has become for me. It's, it's far more complex to me now than it was when I began, because I began thinking of these polarities, but, and I realized that they were, that wasn't what they are at all. And even in my personal life, I, you know, I, I asked myself, you know, even chosen silence, am I choosing it out of purely, purely benign motives, or am I trying to control the world around me? So every silence, I think, can contain both. And I think that that's one of the interesting things to me about the book was was coming to that realization that even the smallest, almost daily silences can contain both. And that it's a it's constant questioning of that silence and its motives that's important to me. Jane, for, for those listening that haven't read your book, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the juxtaposition between the the two characters and and how you kind of brought those together. For the listener, it might seem kind of, you know, confusing. Why did these, how did these two things come together? You know, one of the interesting things to me was how, and I started with the penitentiary, I think intentionally because the, the vision Benjamin Rush had was really, so rudimentary and simple, I think he failed to understand the complexity of the monastery. And so it made sense to me to start off with Charles Williams in that cell, given this sentence, and um, with the belief that very simply in the time and the silence and the isolation, he would come to redemption, which failed to take into account all the um, structures that supported the individual souls within the monastery, the community itself, and even how the silence was n- was never total, that silence was always accompanied by um, music, chanting, even conversation, and that it was never meant to be complete. I think that, I, I hope I started with moving from simplicity to complexity, but then bringing in the complexities of the the cell too, in the sense that later on in the book, I bring in other people who've had to endure uh, silence and solitude in prisons and what they made of it. For instance, Eugenia Ginsburg in the um, Soviet prisons of the Stalin era, and how she, in fact, in that time, marveled at her her memory and all these things, all the literature that came back to her and the poems she remembered and whole books that she could almost recall and what she made of that time for however um, hard it was. And realizing that even in those individual cells, every person endured it differently. And there was a wide range of of, of the ability to endure. Although I would say that it was never beneficial. And Eugenia Ginsburg would never 
um, I think want that want want to, to have been condemned to that prison, although she was able to find something within it. As I read your book, I thought about a conversation I had with a friend of mine who is an elderly Trappist monk now at a monastery here in Georgia, but who during his his novitiate was a novice at Gethsemane Abbey, where Thomas Merton was. In fact, Merton was his novice master. And at some point on the journey, he had an issue of mental health and mental wellness emerge, and he had to spend some time in the psychiatric hospital at Uh, I believe it was the University of Kentucky. And he told me that there was a joke among the monks that the psychiatric ward at the University of of Kentucky was the Gethsemane Annex, (laughs) Uh, meaning that there were so many monks who entered in, you know, and of course this was during the time when after World War II and after Merton's first kind of you know, flowering of popularity, there were a lot of vocations and, and not all of them necessarily persevered, were authentic vocations, but many men entered into the monastery. Some only stayed a few years, some stayed the rest of their lives. But apparently, you know, and this is before Vatican II and maybe before uh, the monastic culture was really taking seriously uh, psychology and sociology and some of those issues. So there was almost a sink or swim ethos in the monastery. And some of the young monks, they sunk and they ended up in a psychiatric ward. So even even an environment where it's freely chosen, unlike incarceration when it's imposed, freely chosen, and the whole focus is is on something beyond the silence, you know, be entering into the silence to get closer to God. Even that proved to be very terrifying for, you know, at least some of the people who entered into it. And then that brings to mind a book that I know you mentioned in your book, uh, Sarah Maitland's book, A Book of Silence. Mm-hmm. where she talks about these solo sailors, people who sail around the world in a solo uh, voyage, and now some of them just literally lost their minds. So I'm curious about this idea of silence as terrifying or silence as terror. And, you know, you've talked about how the experience of writing your book led you to a much more nuanced and much more complex understanding of silence. So I'm curious, any thoughts you might have about this idea of the relationship between silence and terror and that you may have gleaned from your, from your work? I mean, I think that silence is an extreme place and, it, and it's an ex, a total exposure. And even the most balanced person is tested there. And that's why people, that's in part, I think, why people seek it, to see where they will go. That's in part why people flee it, because it's so terrifying. There are no, there's no protection in the silence, which can be very fruitful, but I think it can also, but it's also equally terrifying. And I think, you know, Thomas Merton was continually facing that. And I don't doubt that, you know, when you think of those men going to the monastery after the war and into the 50s, a lot of them were turning away from society. A lot of them were anxious about social things anyway, maybe um, in kind of precarious 
positions themselves psychologically to begin with. And the monastery was either going to help them find home or increase their terror, perhaps. I don't know. But that's my thought is it's just there there is no place to hide in the silence. So that and and it can be either fruitful or devastating. I hear an echo of your answer a couple questions ago where you talked about silence and and complexity and about what is when I choose silence, am I really choosing silence or am I running away from something or, you know, so am I doing self-punishment? Am I doing these things? Because silence just strips us bare, as you just said, Mm -hmm. the world is what it is. And sometimes Mm -hmm. the world is wonderful and sometimes the world isn't wonderful. You know, it's just, it's just be honest. Like that's what it is. It's, it's a realist position. And yeah, so we have to confront that one way or the other. And so I think there will be moments where it makes sense what you just said. There will be moments where not only will it test you, but then it it will also heal you. It can do both. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And who's to say it doesn't happen in the same day? (laughs) Or in the same moment. Or in the same moment. (laughs) Amen. And, and don't mind me, I'm just over here writing down all these fantastic words you're saying, I, where you said even the most balanced person is tested there in silence. Amen. There's no protection in the silence. There's no place to hide in silence. Those are just beautiful words, Jane. Thank oh. you so much for that. Our conversation will return after this brief moment of silence. Please take a breath and be present in this 30 seconds of silence. I kind of want to shift a little bit and ask about the portion on your book kind of addressing the the topic of silencing women. And, you know, often on the podcast, we talk about toxic silence. And, you know, your book has this entire section about the silencing of women. I'm reminded of Tilly Olson's um, Silence, which is a fantastic book about women writers. Were you surprised to find yourself addressing that topic in this book? And, And how did that come up for you? Well, I I wasn't surprised. What surprised me was, you know, I didn't want it to be a a man's story because so much of the history of both silences is the the man's story. Mm -hmm. And so little is known of both women monastics and um, women in the early prisons that I felt one of the most important things was to bring those stories forward as best I could. And it was interesting to me also within the larger story of monasticism and the penitentiary system, how complex women's silence was. For instance, in the penitentiary, just the um, thought that they wouldn't, they didn't have a provision for women prisoners at first. And you think, oh, well, good. (laughs) But in fact, it was because most of the women incarcerated at the time were were in jail for, you know, prostitution or or 
theft or something, not huge crimes, but crimes in which it was believed they couldn't they couldn't find redemption, that women couldn't were beyond redemption. So there was no need to go through this process for them. And to me, that was just it brought up the whole 19th century view of women in, in early uh, American society and just the struggle women had going forward at that time. So it, it and, you know, even prior to that, you know, the whole history of silencing women with the scold's bridal, that women in the colonial period could be charged with being gossips or scolds. And there was no fast and hard rule for that. They could be accused just because their voice was too grating or they talked too much and they could be punished for that. So it was certainly um, a means of control and certainly a means of uh, suppression at that time. It's, it felt really important to me that women have their own section in the book and that it come later after the uh, two worlds had been set and then it could stand as a kind of um, reverberation of those the worlds that I that come previously in the book. Yeah. And with, with you being a woman and a writer as well, was there a part of you kind of more deeply tethered to that? And was there something inside of you that was stirring um, your own experiences uh, with perhaps being silenced as a woman writer? <laughs> Sounds like you maybe have a story there. And I will say it was the hardest section for me to write. Mm -hmm. There were days when I just couldn't face the material. It was really yeah. hard material. And I just had, I would have to leave it aside for a while and then go work on some other part of the book and return to it. I, I found it extremely mm -hmm. difficult. But also I keep thinking there's a segment with the women monastics and the medieval uh, Cistercian nuns in this very remote monastery in France who, when given the choice they were in a you know very dire circumstances at the edge of this stream in, in very crowded and poor conditions, but would given the choice, they did not want to move. And I, it made me realize that, you know, for medieval women, I think the society at large was so difficult to navigate that maybe within the confines that they had set up, there seemed to be more freedom there than in the I mean, and this is a question more than a, I, I can't say this for sure, but there seemed to be more freedom within the confines of the monastery than there was in society at large for them. So and I came away thinking that there has been progress, but it's still been incredibly slow and still is to this day. And silence for women, it has a whole nother, whole, you know, several more meanings than it does for men, I think. I'm curious, obviously as a man, I'm asking as an outsider to this this narrative or this conversation, but where do you see the hope or the promise for the relationship between women and silence? In a society of total equality, I mean, not only for women, but for minorities, then silence would have equal measure for everyone. And then in a... In, and that's maybe the day we're looking forward to, where it doesn't have added weight and added negativity for segments of po the population. Maybe that's all I can say. <laughs> Amen. Amen. That's beautiful. That's, Thank you. And it's, yeah, so beautifully put. I was brought to tears, actually, when 
you said that. That's a, just a really beautiful way to put that. Thank you. I'm curious. You said before that as a writer, silence helps you come to the page. It helps you do things. I was wondering, is silence intentional in that process or does it just come as part of the work? I'm kind of curious about that. I know it's a late follow-up, but I just it just hit me just now as I was thinking about it. I, I can't say that it's intentional so much as it is necessary. Okay. I, I don't, I don't, I can't even comprehend, you know, I know a lot of, and it's interesting that creative process is different for a lot, for, for everyone. Right. I can't comprehend sort of sitting in a cafe and working, mm. <laughs> sort of have to have the, it's the silence accompanied by solitude, I think. And, and sometimes, you know, I think to myself, you know, maybe I should, what about a collaboration? You know, what, what would happen? I've never collaborated. What, you know, maybe a collaboration would be fruitful in a way that I've never allowed myself. So I'm all, I also am open to the, to the possibility that my insistence on silence when I work may also be one of those moments, those times when I'm using it as protection and maybe some negatives come in as well. Does that make sense? Mm. You know? Yeah. So, well, the reason I'm asking is because your work seems like you've mentioned uh, the titles and what you talked about at the beginning about nature and mm -hmm. nature writing. And th I'm just wondering, do you go for a walk? Do you need to spend time with nature and saturated in like I'm kind of looking at that process for you, especially about the topics and everything you're doing? You know, I, I don't think, you know, the thing that say walking in nature does that nothing else does for me is and I always like to be by myself <laughs> although I take hikes with people but I love to go by myself you know just for a walk on the on the ocean by the ocean or something is it's the one time I can forget everything mm -hmm. like there there's it, it's a time of just being which is very it's like my mind is not going mm -hmm. having said that I think that I suspect I can't know this for sure I suspect that is a time of fruitful creative process, that that time of just flying free and forgetting, I return home and I seem to be able to just do accomplish a lot more on the page. It's as if it's, it's, it's not, you know, that I'm thinking, troubling out things on the trail. It's that I'm just freeing myself. Mm. Yeah. Jane, I have a question about, what would you say to someone that says, oh, you know, silence is just a, a rich person's reward or a lucky person's reward, whether it's getting a residency or winning a grant or, you know, being able to find that space and time away? H how would you handle that, a question like that? The tragedy is that it probably is in our society. And maybe there should be a world, there should be a sort of a, a way to bring silence to everybody mm -hmm. and see and see what would happen. On the other hand, I mean, I think of if you, if you go way up in Maine, which is a, you know, there's a lot of poverty. It's very, there's also a lot of silence. I mean, to say it might be, and I'm just thinking aloud here, I'm sort of, that comment might be a little too simple because there are people who are 
extremely poor who have a lot of quiet around them. Or you think of old people who are, you know, isolated and sequestered. Right. So it's not so much a yes or a no as that I think it's a very complex thing. I mean, I think you have to be, there's a certain sort of intended silence that's for the, for people who have the means, but there's um, all kinds of silences, both positive and negative for people who don't necessarily have means. Mm -hmm. Like sometimes it's a matter of a, a shifting of attention or a learning to see that it is there. Right. Um, I know for me, you know, that's, that's a daily practice, you know, especially when we find ourselves in the middle of busyness and noise and chaos. Sometimes it's even right this moment, just looking up out my window, you right. know, it's kind of a moment or a breath. Yeah. Jane, you mentioned that you've written some poetry. Uh, We're curious, okay. it's kind of a two part question. First of all, curious about your experience of the relationship between silence and poetry. And secondly, if there's a particular poet in your kind of, you know, your library, who you think has really articulated both the beauty and the terror of silence. Finally, if you have a poem, either of your own or of an author whom you admire, that you would like to just mention that's really uh, emblematic for you of the silence of poetry or the poetry of silence? I mean, I think silence is an, is an inherent part of poetry, that the white space on the page, the pauses, the, the word choice, the stringency of the word choice is all has to do with sound and silence in concert. And in poetry, that's where it's uh, manifested most intensely in literature. So I don't look to, a, I look to all poetry for a sense of silence, <laughs> taking the easy way out here. <laughs> um, but, um, and I will say, you know, I haven't written poetry. I started out writing poetry and for probably a decade before I turned to prose. But I always carried the lessons of poetry with me into my prose. And that has to do with even the rhythms of the sentences, trying to be economical and uh, precise with the words and to allow a certain amount of space between things has always carried over into my, my prose work. So, I mean, I'm very grateful for those years I wrote poetry. And it's to poets I always go back to when I'm feeling a bit dry or when I just want to be reminded of how beautiful the English language can be, um, how complex it can be, and how there's something that in language that defies sense and that it's not just the meaning of the sentence that matters, it's the sound of the sentences and the rhythms of the sentences that matter. And I think one of the things I, I, that was hardest about silence was shaping the book. And I think the connections I was striving for were more associative than um, direct. And that definitely came out of my experience with poetry and reading so much poetry that I was hoping that even in a prose narrative, there could be a kind of 
a connection that was de defied sense completely. And whether I succeeded or not is for my readers to say. But I, I, did, I uh, that was my hope and that was my challenge. And uh, I would say, when I think back to my early years of poetry, and first starting to write poetry, one of the poets who had a profound effect on me was Seamus Heaney, only because I, I, I think, not only, but because I encountered him at just the right time. I came across his book, Field Work, as I was just starting to write. And it was a subject matter, you know, the rural Ireland that spoke to me in a kind of beauty and language that spoke to me. And I think that book meant the world to me. So, Your response to this question felt like a poem. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> well, and also I just want to say the it is clear to me that you have a poetic sensibility because the book read that way. Oh, that's good to know because I, I was sort of, um, you know, I didn't know what I had for 90% of the time. I kept circling around different ways of connecting the material. It was it was a real challenge, I, I would say, in that way. Well, I think all three of us have, you know, at different points, we've written about silence, and we know it's not an easy topic to write about. So um, I, I admire your book so much. It was just really uh, a wonderful statement, and I appreciate its honesty. And that I think you, 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 you said it so beautifully, that silence is so much more complex than we may think at first. And that includes the ways we relate to silence, the ways we respond to the silence, the ways we bring silence to one another, uh, including the ways that silence gets imposed upon us by others. And so it's... You know, I think it would be on my short list now of books that I would recommend to people who want to, you know, have a meaningful introduction to the world of silence. So thank you very much. Well, thank you. It's been a real privilege to talk to you both. I think this is going to be one of the gifts of the book is the just the ever evolving conversation about silence and where it goes and things I haven't thought of. Thank you. Thank you so much, too, because our podcast, we we often say one of the first things we said was we wanted to put silence back on the map in our culture. And what you actually have done, I want to echo what Carl just said, you, you've, you've written now a social history of silence. It actually helps us talk about it in a way that's very fruitful and very poetic. So thank well, you for that. Well, you're, you're welcome. And uh, I think it was important to find those, you know, those physical places to talk about silence too. the monastery, mm -hmm. the penitentiary helped immensely because it was co a concrete world in which to discuss this very abstract uh, idea, mm. every, every abstract entity. Yeah. 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 Thank you yeah. Jane, so much for your beautiful work. And while I'm cognizant of time, I'm also cognizant that we have yet to ask you if you have a silence hero. Um, someone who for you maybe embodies the qualities of silence and how it can make a difference in people's lives, perhaps somebody known, dead or alive, just anybody. Could be someone uh, from your book even. Well, it's, you know, uh, one of the things, I visited the Trappistine Monastery in Rentham, Massachusetts. Yes, Mount St. Mary's. Yes. And I had an hour-long talk with Sister Evelyn, and mm. it was the most astonishing hour of, uh, of the year, I think, for me, is just her 
uh, her straightforwardness, her her directness, her certainty about what she understood about silence and her experience. I came away from that hour with just so much admiration for her. So I would say, uh, and all the sisters of Mount St. Mary's. <laughs> it was really a wonderful visit there, a, a profound visit there. Did you by any chance meet Sister Agnes Day when you were I, there? No, I did not. She How wrote, about- I can't remember off the top of my head the title of her book, but I'll put it in the show notes on our website. But she wrote a lovely book. She was the shoemaker. Oh, yeah. The, okay. Monastery. Yeah. And, and, and the book includes her poetry. And, and the subtitle of the book is A Cobbler's Contemplations. Oh. I think it was, the title was something like Light in the Shoe Shop or something like that. Mm. So again, yeah, yeah. Monastics who have a healthy relationship with silence are, are amazing people. Yeah, yeah. They are. I had met with uh, Sister Mary Ellen out there, and she was just wonderful, wonderful. And it's a, also a very memorable conversation. Very special place. Very special place. It, it is. I, I, I go back there at a heartbeat, and yeah. I will. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you very much. We you know, we, thank you. Yeah, no, so much. Thank you for the book, and thank you so much for your time. I mean, it's it's such. We love the podcast because we get to talk to people like you. It's just so inspiring to us. It's yeah. been so helpful. We are encountering silence. I'm Kevin Johnson. To learn more about me, please visit kevinmichaeljohnson.com. I'm Carl McCollman. Find out about my work at carlmccollman.com. I'm Cassidy Hall. My website is cassidyhall.com. Please visit the podcast's website at encounteringsilence.com. There you can learn more about each of our episodes and find links to purchase books and other resources we discuss on this podcast. When you make a purchase through a link we provide, the podcast receives a small affiliate commission from Amazon.com. Thank you for doing so. Please also visit Patreon.com slash Encountering Silence to learn more about how you can be part of our circle of supporters. Our circle of supporters help tremendously in sharing our efforts to bring meaningful conversations about silence to our all-too-noisy world. Thank you.